Good morning. <laughs> A preemptive strike there. Um, so uh, I hope that you are excited to worship the Lord this morning. That's what we're doing here today. That's why we're gathered, to worship God. So, you know, we think about coming to, uh, to learn or coming to fellowship or coming to sing and all these things, but ultimately all of it's worship. So we're hearing preaching and preaching and praying and singing and fellowshipping and doing all these things unto the Lord. That's what we're here to do today is worship God to exalt his name. In fact, that is the chief end of man. The end of every person is to exalt God, to make much of him, to worship him. So that's what we're here to do today. That's what we're going to be doing uh, in the, the moments ahead as, uh, as we now sit under God's word. Uh, before I jump in today, I just want to make a quick announcement about the women's retreat. So at the end of January, January the 26th through the 28th, well, we will be having our women's retreat, and we've been posting information about that on the city, and uh, I know that the women have been talking a lot about that, so I just want to encourage all of the ladies, if, you, if you're interested in going to that, that you would see Leanne, talk with her, and even if you're not interested, that you would rethink that, and uh, encourage the men, this is the, big, this is the big encouragement, encourage the men to step up to the plate and make that a reality for your wives for that weekend, to, to do whatever you can to make that happen for, for your wives. One of the ways, you know, we looked at Ephesians 5. We looked at the, the responsibility before God of wives and husbands. One of the responsibilities there is that the husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And what does Christ do with the church? He nourishes the church and he, he instructs the church into purity and so that's one of the ways that we are like Christ to our wives is that we disciple them and we ensure that they grow in the Lord. And this is a key way in which women can get away together and grow in the things of God. And so just an encouragement to the men especially to, uh, to see to it that you are not the obstacle to your wife going along to that. So today we come uh, almost to the end of our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, almost, we're not quite done. We have one more sermon left next week. But if you will, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew 7, verse 24. Matthew 7, verse 24. This is where we'll be picking up this morning in a moment. But as we come to the end of this series, close to the end... I want to bring you back to the very first sermon that was preached in this series, in this passage of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 to 7. I want to bring you back to the very first sermon, and that was entitled, Hear the King. And it was taken from the first two verses of chapter 5. So let's go back there for a moment. I just want to, to draw your attention to those words. As we come to the end, let's go back to the beginning. <coughs> Matthew 5, verses 1 to 2, seeing the crowds, he, speaking of Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. And so at the very beginning of this series on the Sermon on the Mount, the, the the call of Jesus, as we read these words here, is that as Jesus opens up his mouth and speaks, that we listen, that we hear. 
And so that was, that's where we started all of this. All, this, all of these verses that we've plowed through. These three chapters all go back to that plea, really, from God's word, hear the king. We talked about how in the opening chapters of Matthew that Jesus is presented as the king. Remember, uh, in, as, as we approach Christmas, remember the wise men who come to Jesus and they present to him, the, they bow before him. He is the king. The star has led them to the king of the Jews. And so very much at the very beginning of this gospel, Jesus is presented in that royal way. And so when we get Right to the, the chapter before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the king saying, here is my kingdom. This is the substance of my kingdom. These are the characteristics of kingdom citizens. And so as we've talked about many times, the Sermon on the Mount is, as Sinclair Ferguson calls it, a kingdom manifesto. The king puts out before everyone, he says to them, look, this is what my kingdom is about. This is what it is. So we've been told to hear the king. So that leads us to the question, what have we been hearing? Searching, penetrating, sobering, challenging, unsettling, startling. These are just some of the adjectives that could be used to describe what we've heard from the king in his Sermon on the Mount. And I think probably this, this com- gets the clearest, this, this comes into the clearest focus for us, even as we enter into the Beatitudes. As we read about being poor in spirit, being those who mourn over our sin, being merciful and meek and peacemakers, being those who are light and salt in the world. And then we get to those passages that deal with the heart that talk about the fact that murder is not something that is just found in the act itself, that you would go out and kill someone and that equals murder. But Jesus wants to say that murder really begins in the heart. That to be angry with your neighbor, to call your neighbor a fool in anger is itself a form of murder. That it's not just a matter of the act, but it's a matter of a corrupt heart. And then Jesus begins to talk to us about lust. And he says that we're not just going out here committing adultery. It's not the act itself, but it's looking upon a woman lustfully in your heart. That that itself is adultery. So just at that juncture, before we go any further, we've already been challenged at the deepest level of who we are. So we've seen that throughout the Sermon on the Mount. But this becomes especially the case This being unsettled, this being startled becomes especially the case as we enter into the final section of the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in verse 13. So go back to chapter 7 and look at verse 13. This is the, these are the first words of the final section of this famous Sermon on the Mount of Jesus. So verse 13, he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide And the way is easy that leads to destruction and so on and so forth. As he goes on to give more information about what it means to enter into this narrow way. And he begins to unpack that further. And as we've been working our way through this final section, I think there are two main reasons why Jesus' words have been hard or uncomfortable to hear. Maybe that's something that you have 
constantly noticed. Maybe that's something, especially in these, this last section as we started it in verse 13, that you've noticed is that much of what Jesus is saying is heavy. It's hard. It's very uncomfortable. These are not the kinds of words that you read in the Bible and you just, you know, you, you're just not even challenged maybe by them. Although every phrase of scripture should pierce us to the heart. But really there, there are few places in the Bible that pierce us to the heart in such a direct and confrontational way as these final words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So why is it that these words have been so hard and uncomfortable to hear, so prickly? And I think it really boils down to two words, authenticity and judgment, authenticity and judgment. Let me explain what I mean. First, authenticity. The text as we read it, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and following, all the way up to what we're going to do today, this portion of God's word, this portion of Jesus' sermon on the mount, forces us to this question. Are you real? Are you real? Are you genuine? Are you authentic? Are you really a Christian? Are you really a disciple of Jesus? Do you really follow Christ I would say that there, are, there is probably nowhere, nowhere in all of the Bible where this question is more in our faces than this end of the Sermon on the Mount. Questions like these begin to emerge. Let these just settle on you as I read them. Are you on the narrow, hard way where only few are found? Or... Are you on the broad, easy way where there are many? We're forced to answer that question. We can't run from it. We can't escape it. Jesus chases us down with these questions. Are you a sheep who belongs to the good shepherd? Or are you a wolf in sheep's clothing? Are you a healthy tree that bears good fruit? Or are you a diseased tree that bears bad fruit? Do you really know Jesus as Lord? Or do you merely call him Lord? These are the questions that we must ask. These are the questions that each of us, whether we've done it or not, is forced to ask by the end of the sermon on the mount. These are penetrating questions that force us all to think in terms of this one word, authenticity. They force us to self-examination. So let me just ask you, has that been a part of your experience as we've come to the end of this most famous of sermons of Jesus? I mean, this is the portion of the Bible in which we have the Lord's Prayer. This is the portion of the Bible in which we have the golden rule. This is probably the most famous portion of the New Testament that, that has ever existed. For 2,000 years, Christians have held this up as Jesus' teaching in a nutshell. Have you let these words pierce you to the heart? Have you examined yourself? They force us away from false assurance. For those of us who are clinging to the wrong things for assurance of our salvation, for assurance of our, our identity in Christ, for those of us who are clinging to the wrong things, Jesus steers us away from that and he forces us to reckon with what it really means to belong to him. 
what it really means to have him in one's own heart, what it really means to have him as one's Lord, as one's Savior, what it looks like to have been forgiven of all our sins and to be redeemed by him, bought back, purchased with his own blood. So Jesus pushes us away from false assurance. And I think for all of us who who really are Christians, who bear the name of Christ, who know the Lord, it does this one thing which is so important, which we constantly need, and that is it heightens the level of seriousness about divine things. We live in a casual, superficial world. We live, in a, we live in the context of a very watered down evangelicalism, a kind of superficial Christianity. And what Jesus' words do for us is they heighten our awareness of divine things and of the weightiness of the Christian life. They tell us that this is no game. This is no small thing. This is no trivial thing, how we relate to God and the condition of our own souls. Eternity hangs in the balance. So for all of us, the hope is that at least we have received a greater awareness of the seriousness of all of these things that we've discussed. So that's the first word, authenticity. The second word is judgment. By the way, for those of you who are wondering, this is just a little introductory outline, okay? This is not the... For those of you taking notes, this is not the sermon outline. These are just two, two things to consider. Why have these words been so hard and so uncomfortable? The first is because of authenticity. They, they challenge us to think in terms of authenticity. But secondly, they put before us judgment. Jesus has twice as many things to say about hell as he does heaven. Jesus is always putting before us, not the preacher, the Christ The Christ is always putting before us heaven and hell realities that he wants us to reckon with. So Jesus asks us in this passage, in this text, where will you end up? What will be your final destination? So let these questions rest, just as we thought about authenticity. Let these questions freshly rest on your hearts. Will you move from the narrow way into everlasting life? Or will you move from the broad way into destruction? Will you be that healthy tree that remains or will you be cut down and thrown into the fire? This is the language of Jesus. Cut down, And thrown into the fire. That's the words of Jesus. Will you enter the joys of heaven as one who really knows Jesus? Or will he tell you to depart from his presence into everlasting torment because he never knew you? These are hard questions. These are Jesus' questions. So it is clear that Jesus wants us to face the reality of final judgment. So, what are we to make of all of this judgment stuff? What are we to make of all of this emphasis on final judgment? That's certainly not popular today. I mean, nobody wants to talk about that, 
right? What are we to make of it? D.A. Carson appropriately asks this question. Is, is Jesus trying to frighten people into the kingdom? I mean, don't we tend to associate that negatively? Is Jesus trying to sort of scare the life out of you so that you'll drift over into the kingdom or, or go over into the kingdom so that you'll enter in through the narrow gate? Is that, is that what Jesus is about? Here's D.A. Carson's answer. In one sense, of course, the answer is yes. Some people may well be drawn to Christ because of the attraction of forgiveness. Others may feel the first stirrings of desire to follow him. When they first glimpse the immensity of his, of his love or the integrity of his life. Or when they experience the shame engendered by his scrutiny. But not a few i.e. many, will come only because they see that the issues with which Jesus is concerned are eternal issues. Ultimately, nothing less than heaven and hell. There is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned. Jesus wants us to know that. Isn't that gracious? Isn't that kind? Would we prefer he lie to us? Would we prefer that Jesus act as though all is well? That all is well here on earth as sinners rebel against God? That all is well as instead of God's glory filling the earth, that murder and rape and molestation and all forms of evil from the heart fill the earth? No. Jesus is honest with us. All such Things end in hell apart from Christ. Apart from what he did on the cross. Apart from the life that is in him by the Holy Spirit. All men will stand before God and be condemned. And today we come to the last passage in this section that forces us to deal with these two words. Authenticity and judgment. And that's verses 24 to 27. So go ahead and look there, verses 24 to 27. And before we read these, I just want to say this. It is a scary thing to have been coming to church for the last few weeks. Here's what I mean. If you have been coming to church for the last few weeks, or if you've been listening to podcasts for the last few weeks, that is a scary thing. Here's why. Jesus says that to the one who's been given much, much will be required. We have been given much because we have camped out for this time on these words of Jesus that challenge us, that unsettle us. There is a great responsibility that rests on every single one of us. We have received a barrage of truth, of challenging truth from the mouth of Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount. What will we do with it? Please stand with me. For the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 7. What I'm going to do is read verses 13 to 23 before I read verses 24 to 27 because this is really the end. What we're looking at today is really the end of this section. So here we go. Verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. 
Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So that's what we've looked at already. And now we come to our passage for today, the next to last portion of this Sermon on the Mount. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord this morning. Ask that he might give us the spirit. That he might illuminate our minds to understand his word. That he would convert us. If you're here today and you don't know Christ and you know that, ask him right now, God, show me. I'm undone before you. Show me. We're all asking that God would transform our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word. What a joy it is to read it and to sit under it, even when it is painful to read even when it challenges us. What a blessing to be challenged on these two fronts, authenticity and judgment. Father, you do it for your name's sake. You do it that we might shine like the stars of heaven, that we might know you and reflect you and glorify you and enjoy you forever. Father, thank you that this is eternal life, that we might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that if we are 
born again, if we have Christ's blood covering us, then we know you and we have eternal life. And we will pass from this earthly life into a heavenly existence awaiting the resurrection of our bodies, which you assure us by the resurrection of Jesus that we will receive. Father, thank you for the hope that we have. On Christ the solid rock I stand. We thank you for that, Father, that you have put our hearts on the rock of Christ. Father, would you make clear to us today, as we come to the end of this section, would you be so merciful, so gracious, God, as to show every single one of us where we stand with you, to make it abundantly clear, God, and to to give us instruction that, that meets us where we are, that you will apply these words to our own individual hearts, that you will draw everyone in here to yourself. Maybe for the first time, and for those of us who already know you, would you draw us more deeply into the life of Christ, the life of the fruit of the Spirit? Would you fill us with your Spirit? Protect us now from the evil one. We know that as the word goes out, that his desire is to snatch it up, so that it does not take root. Father, would you, would you keep him away from us this morning? Would you keep him away from what is going on here? Would you protect us? We know that there are many things we cannot see. We are told in your word that you created all things visible and invisible. And Father, we know that, that, that there are many invisible things that if we could see them, it would blow our minds. So Father, we pray that even in the invisible realm this morning that you would work for our good and for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title for the sermon this morning is The Foolish Hearer, The Falling House. And as we look at this little parable of two builders or two houses, which we've just read, we need to consider at least four things, at least four things to think on this morning. The foolish hearer, the falling house, four things, the difference, the delusion, the disconnect, and finally, the devastation. These will be the topics that will occupy us this morning. So first, the difference. What do I mean by that? Jesus' final section of the Sermon on the Mount is filled with vivid imagery and stark Contrast. We've already seen this, especially with these two roads and these two trees. I and mean, Jesus really paints these vivid pictures for us. You've got this, this massive road where all these different kinds of people are walking along it. Different stripes of people, different stripes of sin. You have the self-righteous Pharisee right next to the godless pagan. The one who says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Just the, the pleasure seeker, the sensuality seeker, right next to the self-righteous Pharisee who is meditating on his Hebrew Bible as he goes down the broad road that leads to destruction. This vivid portrait that Jesus gives us. And then this narrow gate where one must enter in uh, singly as, as just an individual with no baggage, no other things, but entering through this tight, narrow gate and then walking along this constricted way, this difficult path that is not easy. What a vivid image Jesus gives us of the Christian life as opposed to all other forms of life. And then he gives us this tree imagery 
where you have one, two trees look identical. One of them is rotten on the, at the core. It's diseased. It gives off diseased, rotten fruit. And one of them is healthy. And it gives off these beautiful, edible fruits that reflect the healthiness of the tree. Vivid images and stark contrasts. But Jesus has more for us. Now, in verses 24 to 27, he gives us two houses built by two different builders. But the real issue, or I could say it this way, the heart of the contrast has to do with the foundation. See, it's not about the houses. That's not the focus of the contrast. And the builders are very much different. But the builders are different. And the houses are positioned differently because of what lies underneath these two houses. The wise builder builds his house on top of the rock. And the foolish builder builds his house on top of the sand. I don't know if any of you have ever traveled to Scotland, particularly the city of Edinburgh. That is where my wife and I lived for four years, actually just almost just before we moved here to Noonan. And one of the things that is so striking about that city that you just can't miss, and no matter where you're at, in fact, I walked past it two or three times a day even, is this massive basalt rock right in the middle of the city. It's a massive, huge rock, and upon it sits a castle. This is Castle Rock, and uh, this is one of the most striking features of Edinburgh. And no matter where you're at, you're always sort of looking up at it. The key spots of the city sort of revolve around this, this massive appearance of this, this huge rock structure with a castle situated right on top of it. In my mind, there probably is no better, more vivid illustration that, that I've ever seen or heard of, uh, of what Jesus is talking about. That castle is going to stay there on top of that rock, at least as far as floodwaters and wind is concerned. It is very much planted or founded or built on a rock. So what is the difference between this rocky foundation and this sandy foundation? Something like that castle in Edinburgh built on that rock or a house that is built on the sand, a little too close to the ocean in hurricane season. What is the difference between this rocky foundation and this sandy foundation? Well, look at verses 24 and 26. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Dot, dot, dot. Verse 26 and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. It's a vivid image. Lots of moving parts. But the contrast is so very simple. One hears Jesus' teaching. Well, let me say this. The difference here is between two hearers. That's ultimately what we're talking about. Two different hearers. One hears Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, 
other portions of God's word. By the way, let me make a little application here. You might be tempted to think, okay, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. These, if I have a red letter Bible, all of this is in the red. This is particularly important, so I need to make sure that I hear and respond to Jesus' teaching. But here's the thing that we know. All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is inspired by God. That's what the Apostle Paul says. We find this, Jesus himself says at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, that not one jot or tittle will pass from the law and the prophets. That the scriptures, Jesus says this, the scriptures are unbreakable. And here's what we need to understand. That all scripture breathed out by the Holy Spirit, who lives in us, who himself is the spirit of who? Christ. So Christ speaks through all of scripture. I was talking to one of my Catholic friends earlier this past week, and we got into a little bit of a debate. And one of the things that we talked about was solus Christus, this principle, Christ alone of the Reformation. And one of the things that has been said since the Reformation is this, where Scripture reigns, Christ reigns. You see, we can't detach Christ from Scripture. If Christ is really our authority, then Scripture must be our authority because all of Scripture is breathed out by God. And everything that we find here in the New Testament, everything we find in the Old Testament is breathed out by the Spirit who himself is the Spirit of Christ. Christ speaks to us in every single jot and tittle, syllable, word, phrase, clause, sentence, paragraph, chapter, book of the Bible. So, back to the contrast. One hears Jesus' teaching, and this listening is followed by an obedient response. Hear, obey. Hear, obey. Hear, obey. This person, it's very simple. This person is a wise man who builds his life on firm, stable, unshakable rock. What about the other person? The other person hears Jesus' teaching and does not respond in obedience, but simply continues with life as usual. And maybe that has been you up until now. Maybe you sat here, you've heard Jesus' words from week to week. We end the service, you're getting lunch, you're thinking about your Sunday afternoon. You're thinking about whatever it is you're going to do. You're back to work on Monday. It's gone. It's gone. Everything that Jesus has said to you is now gone. Life as usual. Just another week. Another week. Another month. Another Monday. Happy to hear, but not happy to do. Happy to show up. I'm happy to show up. Come. I'm happy to crack open my Bible. I'm happy to sit here. And to be with, with other people, but not happy to do. This person, Jesus says, is a fool who builds his life on sliding, sinking sand. What an incredible yet simple contrast. It is simple and yet robust and filled with implications. So that's the basic difference that Jesus presents to us. But now we need to dig a little deeper and ask this question. What does it look like to be only a hearer and not a doer? I mean, let's, let's, let's kind of be a little more concrete. Okay, fine. The, the hearer uh, who also does is a wise man. Understand that. 
The hearer who does not follow that up with responsiveness or obedience or action is a foolish person. I get it. I understand. But what does it really look like to be just a hearer? Merely a hearer. And that leads us to our second point, which is the delusion. So we have the difference, which is laid out for us, and then we have the delusion. We find throughout Scripture the idea that Jesus Christ himself is our rock or foundation. And let me make this very clear. Christ is the rock upon which every person must rest to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. Christ himself was sent by God to pay the penalty for sinners. Apart from his death on the cross, we're still in our sins. And as we read earlier, blessed is the man against whom Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. Guess what? God counts every sin against every sinner unless Christ steps in your place and carries your sin just as Isaac carried that wood upon which Abraham was going to sacrifice him. Christ took your sin and he put it on himself, and he bore it on the tree. He took your curse, he took your penalty, he took your punishment, and he bore it on the tree in his own body. He paid the penalty for sin. It's called penal substitutionary atonement. He put himself in your place, grabbed your punishment, and put it upon himself, and he died for sinners. Christ must be your rock. Isaiah 28, 16. Thus says the Lord God, look, this is prophetic. Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone. He's talking about what he's going to do in the future. A precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. We know from the New Testament that this prophecy given by Isaiah 700 years before Christ, that he would lay a stone in Israel and that those who look to that stone, who believe in that stone, would be unshakable. This was 700 years before Jesus. He was prophesying about Christ. This is taken up by many New Testament writers and quoted Isaiah 28, 16. Christ is the rock. And as we read at the very beginning of the sermon, in, I mean at the very beginning of our service in the call to worship, 1 Corinthians three eleven, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And here's the problem with applying the Sermon on the Mount moralistically. Just coming to the Sermon on the Mount saying, check, I am going to make sure that I don't uh, be angry with my, my neighbor. I'm going to make sure that I don't look lustfully at uh, an, another person with my eyes. I'm going to make sure that I think about doing unto my neighbor as I would have them do unto me. I'm going to make sure that when I'm going about my good deeds that I'm not focused on what people are thinking and how they're analyzing me, but I'm going to do it in the right way with the right motivation. Here's the problem. Without Christ, that's nothing. Because our righteousness before God is, as it says in Scripture, like filthy rags. It's like dung. It's nothing. Our righteousness is as nothing before God. What we need is an imputed righteousness. We need Christ's righteousness given to us. And this is why we sing these words, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's what we sang before. Earlier in our service, I dare not trust 
the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Everything that you could build your life on, it's just sand if it's not the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to have Jesus Christ as your rock? That's the question we have to ask. Well, last week, we saw that to believe in Jesus as Lord is to do what he says. So we get a passage of scripture like Luke 6, 46, which says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? In other words, we would say, have you, we, we use this language, have you believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And all the while, for those of us who might would superficially answer yes to that question, all the while, this is what Jesus says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? And this week, we get to the very same idea. To build on the rock is to hear his words and do them. To build on the rock who is Christ is to build on the rock which is Christ as Lord. The one who speaks and we listen. The one who speaks and we obey. The one who speaks and we submit. We follow. That's the only kind of Christian there is. So what does it look like to fall short of this? To opt for sand instead of rock. To be just a hearer who does not do I want you to notice three stopping points to consider. I'm going to call these three sandy stopping points. These are places along the way as you're going to build your house. These are places where you, would, where you stop. You fall short of everything I just mentioned. Instead of building your life on Christ, on the rock, instead of building your house on the rock, you build your house on sand. And I think these are three sandy Stopping points, three ways in which we can be deluded or self-deceived. Listen closely to these. Let these challenge you as you think about your own spiritual condition. So the first of these sandy stopping points is familiarity. This is hearing repeatedly. We see this passage is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has given him all of these words and he's already been walking with these people. He's already been teaching these people. He will go on to teach them. These people are already quite familiar with Jesus' teaching. There's a familiarity here. They're hearing it and it is familiar. And here's what I want you to understand. To have exposure is not enough. This is the problem with living in the South. See, in many places, no one pretends to be a Christian. I mean, that was the case when we lived over in the UK. People didn't pretend to be Christians. They would just tell you they're not. They would just tell you, of course, I'm not a Christian. And they would kind of laugh at you. And, and you know, you, the, the guy, I mean, I can't tell you how many people, I've said this before, how many people in the cab that I would talk to. And, and one guy said to me, you know, every time I have one of you Americans in the, in the cab, you want to talk about, you talk about God or Jesus. You know, this is just something that, that they think is kind of funny. But... The, the problem is that there's many places in the world where there's no pretense to being a Christian. There's no kind of Bible Belt mentality. There's no cultural Christianity. And that is actually a wonderful, refreshing thing in some ways. Part of the problem with being in the South is that everybody thinks they're a Christian. 
just simply because it's a cultural thing. Because they're a Christian because they're not a Muslim or a Buddhist or not a staunch atheist or maybe they're not even quite agnostic. So yeah, I'm a Christian. It's a cultural thing. And they've been exposed to the language. They grew up hearing grandma talk about whatever. They grew up hearing, you know, some, some preaching on TV or the radio. They grew up listening to the things about God. And so it's something that they've even gotten from their family. Or maybe in our culture, you know, I was just talking before the service with someone about this, that, you know, in some places it's kind of acceptable and it's necessary to go to church. It's what you do. You get up and go to work during the week. Well, you go to church too. It's part of what you do in the culture. It's, it's what's acceptable. And so you're exposed because of your regular attendance. Familiarity is a false stopping point. Being familiar with Jesus and his words is not enough. The second sandy stopping point that I want to draw your attention to is agreement. So first, familiarity, that's a hard word to say, and agreement. And we get this word agreement, I think, from the previous context. So look at the verses that go right before our passage. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then look down in verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Do you know what these people have done? These people have intellectually assented to the truths about Jesus. They are ready to affirm three things. They are ready to affirm in the catechism or the confession or the creed. They are ready to, to stand up and to staunchly affirm that Jesus is Lord. They call him Lord. They are ready to affirm that he is powerful. That he is even God's powerful worker. Because they say, did we not cast out demons? Did we not do many mighty works? And they are ready to affirm that all things must be done in Jesus' name. Do you see this? Incredible. These are the kind of people in churches who will tell you, I believe this, 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 and that. Who will be able to recite the creed or be able to affirm whatever statement of faith you put out there, yet it's simply an intellectual assent. Yes, I agree. Yes, I agree with that. Agreement is not enough. To simply agree is to simply hear. And it is to build your life on Sand, familiarity, agreement, and finally, astonishment. Look at the passage immediately after our passage. I want you to see what hearing looks like in practice in this third way. So look at verses 28 to 29 of chapter 7. This is very important. Notice what these crowds, what this crowd, these crowds, this crowd does. Verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, look at this. The crowds were astonished. They were amazed at Jesus. They were amazed at what he had to say. They were blown away by Jesus. Let me just say this. It's not enough to be blown away by Jesus. Those who are merely blown away by Jesus will be blown away by the storm. It is not enough to simply be amazed at Jesus, these crowds who are right now looking at Jesus with eyes wide open. Man, that's a word right there. That is, that is some truth right there. 
This guy speaks like no other. These same crowds will be calling at the end of the gospel, at the end of this three-year period, they will be saying, crucify him. We want Barabbas rather than Jesus. These same crowds who are momentarily astonished at Jesus will turn around and call for his death. Think about the Israelites as they come up to the Red Sea. God parts it. It's incredible. God parts the sea. And they walk through the sea on dry land. That's not enough. Then God drowns their enemies, which foolishly, ridiculously, ran into the parted sea after the Israelites. And God takes the waters and he covers them down over the people. Now, I can imagine that there was probably not a single Israelite who went through that sea that was not amazed. I I can't imagine that anyone was just sitting there checked out. They were all blown away. But what would they go on to do? Many of them, in this mere amazement, this mere astonishment, this mere marveling, will go on to grumble and build a golden calf and worship it instead of this God. You may marvel at Christ's teaching here, but if you don't go and do it, you are building your life on sand. So here's the sum of it. To not live out what Jesus teaches is to not have Jesus, regardless of your familiarity, agreement, and astonishment. You know, when we think of Christless Christianity, I want you to think about this, Christless Christianity. What is Christless Christianity? You know, we would be tempted to think immediately of Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Why? Well, because Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses don't worship Jesus as God. They, Jehovah's Witnesses think Jesus is the archangel Michael. And Mormons do not believe that Jesus is co-equal, co-eternal, consubstantial of the same substance with the Father. They don't believe that. So they, but they bear the name of Christian, the church of Jesus Christ, don't miss the fine print, of Latter-day Saints. That's the official name of the Church of, of the Mormons. Well, we would immediately say, of course, these are, these are Christless Christians. Christians in scare quotes. These are Christless Christians. But here's what I want to submit to you. To separate Christ from his word and not obey him is to have a Christless Christianity. It's that simple. You don't have to be a Mormon to be a Christless Christian. You don't have to be a Jehovah's Witness to be a Christless Christian. You simply have to be a mere hearer. To be a mere hearer of Jesus without being a doer is to be a Christless Christian. 1 John 2, 3 to 4 says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. Here you go. You want assurance? By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Are we saved by keeping commands? No. But the keeping of Christ's word tells us and communicates to us that we have been redeemed by the Son of God and his blood covers all of our sins. So we've looked at the main difference and we've discussed what it looks like to merely hear, but now we need to answer the why question. Why do some merely hear? Why is there a disconnect? Let me ask it this way. Why is there a disconnect between the hearing and the doing? And that leads us to our third point as we go through these last two here As we finish up, why do some hear, 
without doing. One of Jesus' most well-known parables is the parable of the sower. Have you ever read that? Flip over to Matthew 13 with me. We're going to take a quick look at that. Matthew 13. Jesus' parable of the sower. This is a key passage for understanding why some act on what they hear and others do not. Why is it? The word goes out. Some hear, some don't. Why? Here's Jesus' parable. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. He's throwing the seed. Listen to the parable. Think on it. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundred fold, some 60 and some 30. He who has ears, let him hear. So what's Jesus talking about? He's gracious to his disciples. He's gracious to us. He explains to us what he meant by by this parable. So look over in verse 18. Remember, we're answering the why question. Why is there a disconnect between the hearing and the doing? Verse, Verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. So what's the problem? Why is it? That some hear and do not bear fruit, do not produce. Jesus gives us three reasons here. He says there's a lack of understanding. He says there's superficial reception that comes up against difficulty. And when difficulty arises, the person begins to sort of implode and they abandon this confidence in Jesus. They abandon this life of following Jesus. And then thirdly, the reason that the hearer does not become a doer is because he's got other priorities. So let me ask this question. Is that you? Are you sitting here hearing Christ's word, his call that puts before you authenticity and judgment? Are you hearing these words of Jesus? And can you just simply not be bothered? You just can't be bothered with this stuff. I mean, you got too many practical things to do. We talk about Jesus being the one who created. Through him, all things were created, both the visible and the invisible. But for you, life's all visible. 
It's just a matter of, you know, making sure that, that these things get done and that these relationships stay intact and that, you know, you make this money and that you, you build this house or you do this thing, whatever it might be, that, that you're just focused on what's here and now. It's all visible. It's all earthly. You have too many other things to deal with and to fool with unseen spiritual things, maybe iffy things in your judgment. So far, we've looked at the first part of the contrast, the different foundations. But now we turn to the other part of this stark contrast, the end result. And that leads us finally to the devastation. So we've had the difference between these two, the basic difference. One hears, one hears and does. The delusion, we've asked the question, what is it that constitutes falling short of the rock and building on the sand, then we've asked the question, why? Why do some people do that? Why do some hear and not do? And now, as we finish up this morning, we see the devastation. Verse 25 tells us what will come of the house built on the rock. Look at that verse, verse 25. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But notice in verse 27, the very different outcome for the house built on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. One way to apply this is to consider the various storms of life. So think about it this way, as we go through life, We've experienced this. You've experienced, as a Christian, going through very difficult times. I've talked with some of you who have had various diseases, or you have had diseases in the past, or you currently have that, or you've lost loved ones, or you've gone through tremendous difficulty in your life, and you have been able to bear witness to the fact that as the storms have come, maybe little shingles have kind of come off the roof and so forth, but the house stands firm on Christ, that you are able to weather all of these storms of life in a way that you, that you would have found unfathomable. If someone would have asked you years ago, if this were to happen to you, how, what, what would happen? Oh man, I would just topple over. I, that, I'd be, that'd be terrified. And then it happens. And you find the truth that Christ is a rock. We see this. The opposite of this, when unbelievers go through hard times, those things that they cling to so tightly, those earthly things they cling to so tightly, whoosh, washed away out from under them. And we see the devastation in their eyes. We hear the devastation in their words and in the trembling of their voices. They have nothing upon which their life is built. It's all gone. It's sand. We see this in life and we see this in the hour of death. Blessed is the man who dies in Christ. Blessed is the man who stares death in the face with hope in Jesus. Do you know this? Every single one of us is going to die one day. Every single person in this room without fail is going to die one day. And you will either stare death in the face wherever you may be, under whatever circumstances you may be, under whatever level of pain you might be, you will either stare death in the face and see Christ or you will have nothing.
and death will devour you. But in light of the fact that this passage comes immediately after our previous passage about judgment, I think what we are to understand here is that these powerful floods and wind are primarily meant to convey for us God's final judgment. Every person will stand before God. Every person will have to endure the storm of God's final judgment. See, in many ways, all of the hardships of this life and the death itself of the individual person are nothing compared to standing before a righteous, holy God against whom you have rebelled your entire life, in whose face you have spit, whose word you have neglected and disobeyed and shunned, whose glory and holiness you have spent all your days trampling upon. What a terrifying thing it is to fall into the hand of the living God. He will judge every person and his judgment will either be a storm that utterly ruins you, washes you away, or you will stand in Christ, a real disciple, an authentic, spirit-regenerated, blood-bought Christian by the grace of God only. And you will stand on that day. Whether it is life, death, or the judgment to follow, this is the message. Hear it from Proverbs. Proverbs 10, 25. When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. Proverbs 12, 7, the wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. Proverbs 14, 11, the house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. And here is what is so disturbing. Hear this, hear this, hear this. This is what is so disturbing about this passage of scripture today. As we think about Proverbs, those texts we just read from Proverbs, the word in Proverbs in each of those verses is the wicked. But here's what Jesus wants you to know. If you hear his words and do not do them, that is wickedness. It's not just the person who pillages and destroys and rapes and kills and dismantles. It is the person who hears the Son of God speak and does nothing. Such a person is foolish. Such a person is wicked. So as we finish this morning, we return to these two words authenticity and judgment. Are you real? Where is your house? You can give me your address today, but is your house rightly understood? On a rock or is it on the sand? What will come of you years from now when you're dying? Maybe sooner than we think. What will come? Of you. Will you withstand the storm? Don't be a foolish hearer, a falling house. Let's pray. Our Father, you are gracious to give us your truth. You are kind to knock upon the door of our houses and say, Get out, there's a storm coming. Father, would we hear you as the Almighty God speaking to us today? Would we not shun your word? Would we not neglect your word? 
Would we not be disobedient to your word? Would we hear it and would we say, yes, God, I need Christ. I need greater seriousness in the Christian life. These words have penetrated. They have, they have sat on me with heaviness. God, would you transform me? Would you make me more divine focused? Would you make me more storing up treasures in heaven? Would you make me more useful to you, God, while we live in this world? Father, would these be our prayers? Help us, Lord. I pray if there's anyone here today who's not a Christian, would you convert their heart? We know that apart from your grace, this can't happen. Would you do a work? Be merciful, O oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.